Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to study your word and to discover how we can be more effective witnesses for you, how our churches can come alive in knowing you and serving you and being the active outreach centers that you long for them to be in the community. We pray that every Adventist church that we represent would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that every member would be converted and led to you, and that our churches would have an out, a vision for the community of leading men and women and boys and girls to Jesus. And Lord, in this class, expand our minds, enlarge our vision, help us to see the potential for our own ministries wherever we serve, whether we are pastors or lay leaders, but help us get things here that we can apply, that can make a difference. Lord, we're living too late in Earth's history simply to mark time. We're living too late in the history of this world simply to, to come to a seminar and go home the same people. And we pray that you would work your transformation in us, in Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago, in fact, it was just three years ago now, I was teaching for Southern Adventist University I was teaching master's students on the book. We were looking at church growth, and so it was a master's class on church growth. And I said to my students the first day of class, this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take the Bible, read the book of Acts, read it through in one or two settings. It'll take you about four hours to read it through. Read it through thoughtfully, carefully, and prayerfully. After you have read the book of Acts through once, go through it a second time, and list the major church growth principles that you find and discover in the book of Acts. Um, list for me what you see happening there. What are the major elements? What was it that was so dynamic and exciting about the book of Acts that caused the church to grow? And then write for me a five-page paper on that topic. My students came back the next week. I gave them a week to do it. My students came back, and as I began to read this paper, so I had about 16 students in the class, as I began to read the papers, I was probably more amazed than I should have been. When I looked at the papers, it looked as if the papers were essentially the same. The students had read, been reading the book of Acts, and they had grasped the reality of what was going on there. They had sensed what God was doing in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we find universal principles that enable us to understand how the church grows. These universal principles are different than methods. And I really should begin by defining for you the difference between a method and a principle. A principle is eternal and universal. Those two characteristics are characteristics of a principle. A principle is eternal and universal. That means a principle can be applied at any time. A method tends to be limited in time. Where a principle, you can apply it in the first century, you can apply it in the ninth century, the 10th century, you can apply it in the 18th century, the 21st century. So a principle is always eternal in time. If, uh, let me give you an example of that, gravity. Gravity is a universal principle. Um, if I throw an apple up in the air in the first century, it's going to come down. And if I throw it up in the 21st century, it's going to come down. You know, if I, if I stand up on this, and I'm not going to try it, I'll tell you. Uh, I had one knee operation, I don't want another. But if I stand up on this stool and I, f I, and, and I step off and fall off, wherever 
whenever I do that, first century, third century, tenth, I'm going down. It's the same with universality. A, a principle that is universal applies to all peoples, all times, all peoples. For example, if a Jamaican man smokes, it's not going to have any effect in his lungs because he's a Jamaican man, but if an American man smokes, it's going to have effect on his lungs because he's an American, right? What do you think? Jamaican lungs are different, though, aren't they? What about African lungs? What about South American lungs? See, smoking, they're universal principles, aren't they? For an African man or an Indian man or a South American man or American man eats a high-fat diet, he's going to be predisposed to heart disease, right? So heart disease is cross-cultural. So a high-fat diet, that's a universal principle. So a principle has to be universal in time. It has to be eternal in time and universal in scope. So that's the definition of a principle. A principle eternal in time, universal in scope. So what we want to do is we want to look at church growth principles in the book of Acts that are eternal in time. They apply in the first century. They apply in the 21st century. They apply in the, and they're universal in scope. They apply in the Bronx or they apply in a little village in the heart of Africa. Now, methods are neither universal in time or eternal in scope. A method may work in one place, but it may not work in another place. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was going to hold an evangelistic meeting in the Philippines. And I got off the airplane, and they have this big sign, Welcome, Dr. Mark Finley. And the conference president came to me, and he said, Now, Pastor Finley, we are going to have our major advertising for your meetings tomorrow. You're going to hold your meetings at Bicol University. And this is what's going to happen. We have a truck, a flatbed truck. You will sit on the back of the truck on a little chair. And as you sit there on that little chair on the back of the truck, there will be a police car in front with a um, megaphone on it. And we'll be shouting out, welcome, Dr. Mark Finley. All the pastors will run on the side of the truck and give out handbills to the crowd. There'll be balloons on the truck saying, welcome, Dr. Mark Finley. Do you think we might use that in New York City, Times Square, that method, a truck down the center of the street with all the balloons out? What do you think? What would happen if we did that? Pastor may end up in jail, right? So that's a method. But you know what? It worked in the Philippines. Merely because a method works in one place does not mean the method is going to work in the next place. So methods are variable. They may work or they may not. During this class, we're looking at principles that worked in the first century and that will work in the 21st century. And let me kind of give you a resume of the week, what's going to happen this week. This week, in the first class, I'm going to set out these eternal principles for you. We're going to look at five eternal principles. It may take me three hours to set them out this morning, but that's going to be, I want to do that well because that's our foundation. Then I will take these five principles with my wife and apply them to local congregations in the context of health evangelism. But I'm going to give you a much broader foundation in the first presentation than health evangelism. And so this morning, we're going to go through the book of Acts, look at strategic planning for mission. The New Testament church began in Jerusalem, Acts 2, 47, 4, 4, and 6, 1, and 7. It rapidly spread through Judea and Samaria, and it penetrated the farthest corners of the earth. If you look, for example, at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and I'll encourage you to bring your Bibles to class. If you look at Colossians 1, 
you'll find that here in Colossians chapter 1, that by the time we come to approximately 60 A.D., 30 years after the cross, if you look at Colossians 1 verse 27, the Bible says, and, and verse through verse 29, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now notice what the Bible says, to this end, to this end I labor. So the Apostle Paul's great goal was to see the gospel go to every human being. The challenge that the church faced in the book of Acts was enormous. The population of the Roman Empire in the first century was 180 million. So you look at the first century and the population was 180 million people. You had about, the, if you look at the uh, number of disciples that met in the upper room, there were 120. So 120 disciples met in the upper room. The challenge was to reach 180 million people. Now that would mean that there was one Christian for every 1.6 million. Now the statistics were enormous. Today in the world there's one Seventh-day Adventist for every 421 people. It's a little less now, 418 people in the world. So we have one Adventist every 418. We talk about a secular culture, a godless culture, how difficult it is to uh, reach our society. But you look at what the disciples faced. I mean, they, if you, if you analyze New Testament society, and I've read some books on Roman Greco culture, the New Testament society was a godless society. It was a society that was bathed in Greek philosophy. It was a society that was uh, bathed in Roman military might. It was a society that was sports mad. It was a society that uh, had feasts that lasted for months. And in those feasts that the emperor would flow that, throw that lasted for months, they had rooms where after you had eaten so much and you were so filled, you would go out and vomit. And they provided as part of the menu a feather that you could tickle your throat with when you ate so much. And they had what they called emaces basins. And it was perfectly proper to take your little emaces basin, your little bronze basin, you tickle, you, you take that in your feather, you go to the throw up or vomit room, you put the feather down your throat, you vomit in your basin, and you come back and eat more. Some menus included little pink, and you can read these ancient Roman menus, they, they included little baby pink mice that you would hold by the tail as they flopped around, dip in honey, and swallow alive so that you could vomit when you went to the Macy's room even easier. Feasts lasted for months. Sporting events, we have a movie called The Gladiator. They had the real thing. And so you look at the society, and it was characterized by Greek philosophy. Often you would go to the Roman Forum, and there would be arguments on the street by Socrates and Plato. I mean, by, by proponents of Socrates and Plato. They'd be arguing in the street over philosophy. So intellectualism gripped Roman society. The Roman army was the strongest army in the world, and it had military might. They were dominating the world with military might. In addition to that, the sporting events, concerts, the uh, immorality, homosexuality was common in the Roman baths. 
prostitution was very common. So the things that we see in our society, really the seeds of the Roman Empire have flourished in our society today. But ancient Rome was a class structure. You had the very wealthy and you had the very poor in, in Rome. And it was in that context, that setting of philosophy and military might and sports and culture, it was in that context that you had 120 disciples that met in Acts 1 in the upper room. And when you see what happened, it, was, it is absolutely amazing. And let's just take one moment and look at some of the numbers in the book of Acts. You're familiar, of course, in Acts chapter 2, that 3,000 are baptized in a single day. And so if you look here at Acts, the second chapter, and you look at verse 41, and we'll just look at some of the numbers. We start in the upper room in Acts 1 with 120 disciples meeting in the upper room. We go to Acts, the second chapter, and you'll notice in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day 3,000 were added unto them. The disciples woke up in the morning of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and they had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea that the world was going to be changed that morning. And they had prepared their hearts, and the Holy Spirit was poured out dramatically, and God did some things that surprised them, and that's the kind of God we serve. They woke up in the morning, and the Spirit of God was poured out in an incredible, powerful way. 3,000 were baptized that day. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. How many of those who heard the word believed in the number of men? 5,000. So in Acts chapter 4, you have 5,000 believers, just men. If you have 5,000 women and children, the church now in a few short days comes to 15,000 from 120. You go to Acts chapter 5 and you look there at verse 42, verse 42 or, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. So they're preaching, they're teaching Jesus. By Acts chapter 6, verse 7, many of the priests, last part of Acts 6, 7, many of the priests are now obedient to the faith. You have religious leaders that are becoming Christians. As you go through the book of Acts, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands, in fact, in the middle of the book of Acts, the Bible uses the word myriads, and the word myriads in the Greek language means tens of thousands. So the Holy Spirit is being poured out quite dramatically. Tens of thousands of people are becoming Christians. By the time you come to the end of the book of Acts, as clear as we can tell, most students of religion and the sociology of religion indicate that there are one million believers by the time we come to the end of the book of Acts. Now, what I want you to see is what was the population of the Roman Empire? What did we say? 180 million. And you look at Acts 1 and you have 120 believers and the ratio is one believer to every 1.6 million. But you come to the end of the book of Acts, you've got about a million Christians now, and, the, and you, your ratio is now 1 to 180. It is just dramatic what happened in the book of Acts. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit enabled the church in 40 years to reach the world. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say the gospel is preached to every creature under heaven. Can it happen again? Amen. Will it happen again? Amen. Will God pour out his spirit dramatically to reach our world? Indeed, indeed he will. The mandate to evangelize the world and make disciples of all nations comes directly from Jesus. 
any church that is not growing, any church that is stagnant, any church that has little interest in the community is disobedient to the commandment of Christ. Disobedient to the commandment of Christ. The idea that we are the remnant and we have to save ourselves, and that the whole world is lost, but God has called us to sanctification and holiness so we can save ourselves. That is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the message of Adventism because the mandate to evangelize the world and make disciples, the good news is so good we want to share it. It is his will that every person on the planet Earth be saved. They all will not be, but that is not because of God's intent. It is because of their choice. He is unwilling for any to perish, and he's passionate about reaching lost people. In the book of Acts, the church grew spiritually, numerically, geographically, and cross-culturally. So when we talk about church growth, we're not talking simply about numerical growth. When we talk about church growth, we're not talking simply about the numbers. We are talking about numbers, but in Acts, the church is growing spiritually. They're growing closer to Christ and His grace and power. They're growing numerically. People are being added. They're growing geographically from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. They're growing cross-culturally, that is, with people of varied ethnic groups. You have Jews, you have Gentiles becoming part of the church, you have Greeks becoming part, you have Africans becoming part. So that's the beauty of the Christian church. It grows spiritually, numerically, geographically, and it grows cross-culturally. Luke uses two significant Greek words in Acts. Luke, you know, if I asked you who wrote more in the New Testament than anybody else, you probably might think, Paul, it's Luke. Luke. If you look at the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts, there's more there than in the writings of Paul. Um, so Luke is the foremost writer. Luke was a physician. Isn't it rather interesting that a physician wrote more in the book of Acts than it wrote, wrote the book of Acts about church growth? Now Luke uses two significant terms in Acts to describe the explosive growth of the New Testament church. The first is oxano. That's an agricultural term which means to grow or increase. It has to grow with a it has to do with a rapidly growing harvest. So when Paul is talking about the church growing in the book of Acts, when he's talking about members being added to the church, he's using this word oxano, which is like the harvest is here. It's like the harvest is just exploding. It's like he walks out into a field. Oxano is an amazing word. It's like oxano is the word a farmer would use when he walks out in a field in Michigan into an apple orchard, and everywhere he looks, the apple trees are just filled with apples. Or it's like a farmer in uh, Florida who walks into the beautiful orange grove, and he sees this incredible orange grove, and you can't see anything else except oranges, 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 and the farmer look, goes, Oxano! In other words, look at the harvest. And that's the word that Luke uses to describe the harvest in the New Testament. That every place he looks, just like when you, every place you look in the orange grove, every place he looks, people are coming to know the Lord in harvest. Now the second Greek word is another interesting word. It's plethuno. He uses that to grow as well. Plethuno is an interesting word. It is the word multiply. And um, multiply is like when you have a baby. It's like Women are pregnant and having children. And so the church is growing like a harvest in Acts, and the church is pregnant having children. David Hicks, a writer, uh, a theologian, puts it this way. Luke describes the growth of the early church 
in the same terms that the Septuagint, when you see this word here, it means LXX, that is 501010, that's Septuagint. 70 scholars took the Old Testament from Hebrew, translating to Greek, so that it could be more readable uh, for the average reader, but that's what that means. The Septuagint describes the increasing population of the earth and the increasing number for the children of Israel. Just as children are a blessing from the Lord, and just as the increase of Abraham's descendants was a blessing, so also the growth of God's kingdom is a blessing from God. Do you remember what the Bible says in Proverbs, children are a blessing from what? The Lord. This word pethuno that is used means the blessing that God gives the church when the gospel is shared and new children are born into the kingdom of God. So God wants to bless your church with many new children. God wants to bless, God wants to increase the family. And just as we rejoice when a baby has a child, so we can literally, re I mean, when a, when a mother has a child, babies don't have children, when a mother has a child, just as we can rejoice when a mother has a child, so we rejoice when new children are born into the kingdom of God. Now, a careful study of the book of Acts reveals the disciples' success was based on five universal principles. We're going to talk about those. These eternal evangelistic principles bridge cultural barriers and ensure success in soul winning. If a church applies one of these principles, it will grow some. If it applies two of these principles, it may grow a little more. But any church that applies these five church growth principles from the book of Acts is going to explode in growth. Any church that will take these principles seriously, have their church board study how to apply them, will see growth that is unusual and unprecedented. They're simple principles. It's this master strategy that I'm going to share in our first class is based on five church growth principles. As I've traveled the world and interviewed pastors, pastors who may have never thought consciously about these principles and pastors who may never have studied them themselves, but they've applied them inadvertently. They haven't known necessarily uh, about the principles, but they may have applied two, three, four. I've traveled throughout China and uh, been to the largest Adventist church in the world in China. It has six to 7,000 members. We have a large church building there. It's an amazing congregation, pastored by a woman, incidentally. I was in her church when she made an appeal, and 400 came forward for baptism that Sabbath in her church, three to 400. It was just amazing. But she understood these principles and was applying them in China. I've been in churches in Africa where they understood these principles and are applying them. Small churches in North America that have applied these principles, and as they've applied them, their churches have grown and they're no longer small churches. The five keys to the successful evangelism are biblical, Christ-centered principles, and they testify to their explosive power by producing growing churches. What are they? The first is revival. Churches grow as members are revived. Churches grow as members are transformed by the grace of Christ. All numerical growth in a local congregation is based on spiritual growth. 
you're not going to have very much numerical growth unless you have spiritual growth. Spiritual growth becomes the very anchor. It becomes the very foundation. What is spiritual revival? It's the renewal of spiritual life that leads to a deep sense of dependence and reliance on God. Spiritual revival takes place when our spiritual lives are renewed. When we have a new sense of dependence and reliance upon God. The book of Acts testifies to the dynamic power of God working through converted believers. God must do something in me before he can do something through me. God do, must do something for me before he can do something with me. God must do something in my heart before I can do something in the world. In Christian life, being is more important than doing. You can do without being, but you can never be without doing. You can do without being. You can get all involved in activity, 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 and still have a very shallow, formal experience with Jesus. An activity can become your God and your Savior. So you can do without being, but you can never be without doing. But when you come to Christ and he transforms your life and he makes you over again and you understand his grace and you're immersed in his love and you understand the uniqueness of a message that God has given to transform the world and you understand the three angels' message, it so burns in your heart and so transforms your life that you have to share it. You can do nothing else but share it. So you can do without being, but you can never be without doing. And that's what the book of Acts testifies. The New Testament church grew largely because each member experienced a personal encounter with Jesus. Let's go back and review what was happening in the lives of these New Testament believers. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said to them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses to me. In other words, when the Holy Spirit transforms your life, you will be a witness. Witnessing isn't something you have to manufacture. Witnessing isn't something you have to put pressure on yourself to do. You will be a witness when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Remember when Peter and John were told no, that they were no longer to witness, no longer to share. What did they say? We cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. In other words, we've been transformed by the grace of Christ. This is not an option for us, right? This is no option. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice the relation between the two. They were filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And the result of that was what? Speaking the word of God with boldness. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection. So there's a relationship between what's happening inside of them and what they are proclaiming. Look at John. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you eternal life. So I bear witness and declare to you eternal life when I've heard something, when I've seen something, when I've looked upon something, when my hands have touched it. When Jesus comes into my life and I am transformed by his grace, that leads me to proclaim and declare that which we have seen and heard. In other words, that which is the essence of our own life. 
that which is part and parcel of our own being, that also you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Revival leads to witness. Without genuine, authentic revival, there is no genuine, authentic witness. This is a principle. It applies to a church in Africa. It applies to a church in South America. It applies to a church in Inter-America. Churches grow when they experience spiritual revival. Churches grow when members understand God's grace and God's power. The disciples shared a Jesus Christ they knew. They proclaimed a Christ whom they experienced. They witnessed of a Christ who changed them personally. These newly converted disciples, filled with the Spirit, had hearts overflowing with the desire to proclaim his love to every single person they met. Steps to Christ, page 78. Let's read it together. No sooner does one come to Christ than there's born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. It reminds me of a story that comes out of Africa that came to us at the General Conference. You remember not just a few years back in Sudan, there was this terrible civil war in Sudan. And uh, many people fled the civil war because villages were being burned and uh, women were being raped and it, there was poverty and it was just a terrible situation. Villagers were being taken out at night, young men and being killed. So many Sudanese fled across the border into Uganda. As they did, there were refugee camps set up, as are in many countries in that kind of war situation. So Uganda set up a lot of refugee countries, camps. In one of the refugee camps, there was an old Adventist pastor. And he met a young man. This young man was 19, 20 years old. He had fled from Sudan. And the Adventist pastor began sharing with this young man about Jesus. And he began sharing with him about the principles of the Bible. And this young man accepted Jesus, and he accepted the fact that Christ was coming again, and he accepted the Sabbath, and he accepted the Adventist message. As the war lessened and abated, the young man decided to go back to his village. And he said, I think it's safe to go back now. The rebel forces have moved on. They're in a different part of the country. So he did. Went back to his village. And as he went back there, he had just accepted the Adventist message. He had been baptized in the refugee camp. So he went back, and as he's back in his village, he began to share Jesus. Because what does it say? No sooner does one come to Christ than is born in his heart, what? A desire. A desire to make known to others. What a precious friend. And this young man just couldn't keep still. So he began sharing Jesus with this friend and that friend. Pretty soon he had about seven or eight of his friends that would come, and they'd meet around the campfire, and he'd share everything he knew about the Bible. He didn't know that much. But he did know Jesus changed his life. He did know Jesus was coming again. He did know the seventh-day Sabbath was Saturday. He did know it was wrong to eat pork. So he knew a lot more. And he, and, and, and he shared with them everything he knew. Well, pretty soon they said to him, well, we accept all this. You know, six months had gone by. And they said, they said what do we do now? He said, well, when I accepted all, I was baptized. They said, baptize me. He said, I can't baptize you. I'm just a, a lay person. But I'll tell you what I'll do. That old pastor in that camp, I bet he's still there. I will go find him and I'll bring him back. It's only about 200 kilometers from here. And I will walk there. So he made his way down those dirt trails 
He made his way down those windy roads and through the jungles, came to the camp and found the old pastor. He said, Pastor, you won't believe this. I have seven converts in my village. I've been telling them about Jesus. I couldn't stay still, Pastor. Come. And the pastor said, look, I'm an old man now. There are rebels still in the woods. I just can't come. I just can't do it. It's too far, 200 kilometers. So the young man walked back 200 kilometers. By now he's walked 400 kilometers. And he said to those seven, praise God, praise God, I found the old pastor. All we have to do is walk back to him. Let's go. <laughs> no sooner does one come to Christ than there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others. You can't keep still if Jesus really is in your heart. That young Sudanese boy walked back another 200 kilometers. Now, this is a health seminar. How many kilometers is that now? 600. He walked back to the village. Those seven were baptized in that village, and then they walked back. Now, the interesting thing is, when I heard the story at the General Conference, I sat down with the president of the Middle East Union at the time, and I said, Sudan at that time was in the Middle East Union, and I said, Tell me, how long did it take them to walk that 200 kilometers? You know, 200 kilometers is about 100 and what, 30, 40 miles? He said they were averaging probably 20 miles a day, which is not impossible. You know, you walk three miles an hour and you can walk 20 miles a day. And he said they rested over, he said the young man would rest over Sabbath. So it took him eight or nine days to get there to the village, uh, from his village to the refugee camp. He said, but here's the interesting thing. When the seven converts walked back, it took them six months. And I said, why six months? And he said, because every village they stopped in, they preached an evangelistic meeting, and now we have churches all the way from the refugee camp <laughs> to that village. When you come to Jesus, when a church, when an elder comes to Jesus, when a deacon falls in love with Jesus, there is that desire to share. Ellen White says, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. So the first work of any pastor, the first work of any lay leader, this is foundational. The first work, the most urgent. So this is the, to seek this should be our first, there must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of God. Not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing on us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than the earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. So God longs to pour out his Spirit on your church. God longs to pour out his Spirit on your family. God longs to pour out his Spirit on your community. So our first priority, the first key is revival. Churches are revived now when there is a renewed emphasis on intercessory prayer. We've talked about the need for revival. We've talked about the fact that churches will not grow unless there is a revival. How does revival take place? First, churches are revived when there's a renewed emphasis on intercessory prayer. Let's look at the elements in Jesus' prayer life and see what we can discover from Jesus' prayer life that we can apply to our congregation to initiate spiritual revival. Now, there are three things about Jesus' prayer life I think that are significant. One, Jesus had a time to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, sometimes the simplest things are the most profound. Jesus had a time to pray. 
he set aside a specific time to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. As a pastor, do you have a time to pray? A time that you have set aside to meet God, to know God. Somebody said, oh, I pray all the time. That's like the person says, I eat all the time. <laughs> you know, you can eat all the time, but you're not going to get very much nourishment, typically, if you do that. You get a little snack here and a little snack there. But when you sit down and eat a meal with adequate protein and adequate carbohydrates and uh, potatoes and vegetables and salad, and you have a regular time to eat. You know, when I was brought up in my home as a boy, I knew that mom was going to have that food on the table and we were going to eat at 5.30 every night. If I was not there, I was not there. But my family ate 5.30 every single night. My dad worked. I was not brought up in an Adventist home. But we knew regularly. Regularity was important. And we had that meal on the table, 5.30. Do you have a time to pray, a time that nothing interrupts, a time that you come and your heart is one with God in that prayer? Jesus had a time to pray, the Bible says. And uh, there in our prayer times, where we can open our hearts to God, our hearts are changed and transformed. Testimonies, volume 6, page 47. Communion with God through prayer and the study of his word must not be neglected. For here is the source of his, the pastor's, strength. No work for the church should take precedence over this. No work for the church that you do should take precedence over your relationship with God. If you become too busy as a pastor to know God, you have become so busy that you've lost your source of power. If you're overwhelmed with the duties and details of ministry, you have lost that which gives you strength. Secondly, Jesus had a place to pray. Did you remember reading in Mark 1, verse 35, where the Bible says here in Mark 1, 35, that Jesus came to a solitary place and there he prayed? Jesus said this alone place. It's very difficult in the world that we live of technology with cell phones and uh, computers to have time alone. Time that is uninterrupted. Time that you can listen to your heart speak to God. Time that God is there and to find an alone place. I had a friend who, when his children became about nine or ten years old, I don't remember, was it nine or tenth birthday, he would give them a little prayer rug, and he would, that would be a kind of an initiation for them. He had taught them to pray since they were little children. He'd give them this little prayer rug and put it right at the base of their bed. It would be hand-woven or beautiful, beautiful rug. And he'd put it there, and he'd say to the children, Now, children, every morning when you get out, this is your prayer time. This is your prayer place. Kneel on this rug and seek God. Um, I remember when I was becoming a Seventh-day Adventist, my father was an Adventist. I was not. And I would go out and play basketball on Friday nights, and I'd come home. It'd be 10, 11 o'clock, and I'd lay in front of the television, 17 years old, and watch the late, 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 late show. You know, you'd watch uh, Alfred Hitchcock. You'd watch some Zorro movie or some Frankenstein movie. I don't know why I was interested in those things, but you have to forgive me because I was a heathen in those days. And <laughs> I'd lay in front of that, you know, television and look at that stuff. And I'd look out of the corner of my eye Oh, Friday night, I can, I can still see it now, you know. I was with my dad yesterday. He lives in the area. He's 87 years old. And my mom, two years ago, died of cancer. And her grave is just about uh, a mile and a half from here. So I took my father, 87, went out and sat by mom's grave yesterday afternoon. And we talked about the resurrection and Jesus will come. And he had, you know, tears running down his face because he was married 66 years to my mother. 
but I owe my father a great deal. I would, I would lie in front of that television as a 17-year-old boy, had little interest in faith and religion, and I'd look through the corner of my eye, and there in the uh, living room, uh, there was Dad, and he'd be kneeling down by this old black and white chair. You know, I grew up in a simple home, and black and white vinyl chair, stuffing coming out, and he'd have his head in that chair, and he'd be praying, and I'd see his mouth moving, and he'd say, Dear Lord, be with my boy. You know, Mark doesn't know you. He does not too interested in you, but be with my son. And he'd be praying. You know, he had his place to pray. That was his old prayer chair. Now in my home, I have a little study and I have a blue chair, and that's my prayer chair. Love to go to that chair and pray. In, my, in our bedroom, we have a little blue uh, couch, and I go and put my face in that couch and pray. My wife likes to pray walking, and she does a lot of prayer walking, and we have uh, 17 miles of trails where we live, and she goes out and when the birds are singing in the morning, and she prays. Do you have a time to pray? Is there a special place that you have that's your prayer place, that you go there? Remember, Jesus went to Gethsemane a lot. Uh, the Bible tells us that Christ loved to go to that garden. He loved to kneel beneath the olive trees. When he went to Gethsemane, and we have the Gethsemane prayer recorded in Matthew chapter 26, that was not the first time Jesus had ever been to Gethsemane. He went there regularly. What are the essentials of revival? First, prayer. Review and Herald, August 8, 1878. The praying minister who has living faith will have corresponding works. Great results will attend his labors despite the combined obstacles of earth and hell. I love that, don't you? Amen. Do you want great results to attend your work? Great results? The praying minister who has what? Living faith will have corresponding works and great results will attend his labors despite the combined obstacles. The devil can throw every single obstacle against you. The devil can throw every single challenge against you. But as a praying preacher, praying layperson, you'll have great results. Thirdly, Jesus had a method of prayer. Jesus not only had a time to pray, Jesus had a place to pray, but Jesus had a method of prayer. Now, this surprises some people. Because when you study Jesus' prayers, Jesus' strongest prayers were not silent prayers. Secret prayer is not necessarily silent Prayer. Let's look at Jesus' prayer life. We'll look at two or three passages on Jesus' prayer life. Matthew, the 26th chapter. Matthew, chapter 26. Many people have the idea that secret prayer must be silent prayer. Not necessarily so. Matthew, chapter 26, verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, next word, saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It was, he was praying out loud. Uh, verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying. Uh, verse 44, so he left and went again and prayed the third time, saying. So evidently, Jesus was praying out loud these prayers. Uh, when you look at the Lord's Prayer, why did the disciples ask Jesus to pray the Lord, to teach them how to pray? Because they came upon him, and what happened? They heard him praying, and they knew they didn't pray like that. And so when they heard him praying out loud, or if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5. So it, now, don't misunderstand me. It's appropriate to pray silently anytime you want in any place you want. But if you really want an experience with God, learn to pray out loud. And uh, I'll explain why shortly. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard. Well, what did Jesus do? He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement or strong cries and prayers. 
So Jesus prayed out loud. Has your mind ever wandered when you prayed? You knelt down to pray, and you had prayed for about 30 seconds, and pretty soon your mind was thinking about, oh man, i got to go to the grocery store. I forgot to buy milk for supper or for breakfast. Or you're kneeling down and thinking, oh boy, my child has a test today. I hope they pass it. Or you're kneeling down and you're thinking, what was the score of that game last night after all, or that soccer match? I mean, you know, have you ever knelt down and you've had your mind wander in prayer and your mind is all over the place and you don't even recognize it for a while, right? And pretty soon you recognize, hey, I'm supposed to be praying here and my mind is wandering. What's going on? When you pray out loud, your brain has to engage your mouth. And as the result of that, your, te your tendency to have your mind wander is a lot less. And when your mind does begin wandering, what happens? You stop verbally praying. And you recognize it immediately, and it's easier to bring your mind back. But somebody said, Pastor, I am not going to pray out loud, and here's why. I don't want the devil to hear what I'm praying. And since the devil can't read your mind, I don't want to ever give him any tips. Now, my dear sister, my dear brother, do you think the devil is omniscient? Does the devil know everything? No. Is the devil omnipresent? Is he present everywhere? How is the devil present anywhere? Through only his evil angels, right? Because the devil's not omnipresent, right? He's only present. When you begin to pray, the good angels surround you, clothe you in, chase away the evil angels, and shelter you in the arms of God. Amen. So you don't have to worry about the devil hearing you because the last place it is written, at the sound of earnest prayer, Satan's host trembles and flees. At the sound of earnest prayer, that's the last place those demons want to be because God is sending good angels. When we're on our knees praying and we're seeking God and we're teaching our members, how do you lead your church into revival? You teach them how to pray. You, you, set, you, te you, you teach them how to have a time to pray and a place to pray and to seek God out loud and to pray for people by name. I love our high calling, page 130. Let's read it together. Learn to pray aloud where only God can what? What's the first word? What does learn mean? Is learn something that comes naturally? Is learn something that uh, we automatically, spontaneously do? So learn to pray aloud. It's an art that you learn. The more you learn to do it, the more you're closer to God and the more he touches your life. John Bunyan said this, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can't do more than pray until you have prayed. If you want to be effective in reaching your community for Christ, five keys. What's the first key? Revival. Revival. Churches are revived when they learn to pray, when there's intercession. My question is, does your church have prayer bands that meet on Sabbath morning that are seeking God? I remember here in Orlando, we were going to have an evangelistic meeting at the Forest Lake Church, and Derek Morris was the pastor a number of years ago, 2008, 
And I came on Sabbath morning, and Derek said, Mark, you will be amazed at what happens in our church on Sabbath morning. Came on Sabbath morning, and by 7.30, members were gathering in the Sabbath school rooms in the back of that church to seek God to pray that visitors would come to church that morning and that the Holy Spirit would be poured out dramatically. In that evangelistic series, we baptized over 200 people. In fact, some of the folk that are helping here, my wife, for the nutrition series were baptized in our series back there in Forest Lake. When I would come into that church on Sabbath morning, there would often be 30, 40, 50 people, Sabbath school rooms, kneeling down, 20 people, praying that the Holy Spirit would be poured out that Sabbath morning, praying that hearts would be touched. Wednesday nights, there are churches in North America where people come uh, before the Bible study hour to seek God and pray. There is and has been for many years here at Forest Lake, midweek, 150 people, 200 people coming out, seeking God in a prayer called, the, in a series called The House of Prayer. Selected Messages, Volume 2, 377. Ministering angels are waiting about the throne of God to instantly obey the mandate of Jesus Christ to answer every prayer offered in living faith. You're on your knees praying and you have a son or daughter that doesn't know Christ. That son or daughter, that son, Billy, is in Tampa, going to go into a nightclub. You brought him up in Sabbath school. Your heart is broken over Billy. He's, it's a Saturday night, he's gonna go into a nightclub. You're on your knees interceding. The prayer ascends to Jesus' throne. Angels look at Jesus and say, Jesus, can I go? Jesus, can I go? Jesus, can I go? Ministering angels are waiting about the throne of God instantly to obey the mandate of Jesus Christ. That angel wings his way from worlds afar, beats back the angels of hell that have been tempting Billy, and Billy says, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. Now, it does not mean that every time you pray, every child is going to make a positive response. But it does mean this, it's going to be more difficult for them to make a negative response. Yeah. They still must choose. God doesn't choose. But the battle is far more intense if you have praying parents. Amen. The battle is far more intense. It becomes more difficult to do wrong because the angels of heaven are impressing them to do right. The angels of heaven don't make our decision to do right. But I've had young people. I had a, the, a, a group of young women coming to our evangelistic meetings, New Haven, Connecticut. They were coming every single night, and, and they accepted the entire Adventist message. I preached the Sabbath. They accepted it. But then they went to their preacher on Sunday morning, and the preacher began to use those texts. We're not under law. We're under grace and all this business. And they came that next Tuesday or Wednesday night. They had this big stack of books that we had given to them, and all the magazines from the lectures and all the books that we had given. And they said to, my, to one of our ushers, here are our books. Here are your books that you gave us. Here are the magazines. We're not coming back to the meetings. We're not under law. We're under grace. These are young students, university student age. They were now young students actually out in the workforce, women in their early 20s, wonderful young women. They said, we don't want anything to do with Adventists. We want nothing to do with you. We don't want you to come to our home. We're not coming back to the meetings. That night I went back and prayed. And I have to confess to you, in those years I didn't understand intercessory prayer as much as I do today. I prayed for a few minutes and went to my bed. But I had a young Bible worker, a young man by the name of Michael. And he understood intercessory prayer. And he decided that night he wasn't going to go home. And he went and he, to the church. He had a key to the church as a Bible worker. And he told me later... He went and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he prayed from early into the morning. 
Now, it's not how long you pray. I've had many people say to me, Pastor Finley, how long do you pray every day? And my response to them is always the same. I pray long enough to know that I've been in the presence of God, long enough to know that God has heard me. Some days my prayers are much longer than others and other days shorter. It is not sanctification by the minutes you pray. It's knowing that you've entered the presence of God. Sometime that may be an hour and sometime that may be 15 minutes and sometime it may be shorter or longer. But you spend time in God's presence. That's the important thing. You spend time knowing God. So this young man went and he told me later, he said that he went in there at about 11 o'clock and he read his Bible and he sat in church and he prayed. And about 12.30 as he was praying, he said, I knew that God had answered my prayer. I knew God was going to touch the hearts of those girls. That was on about a Wednesday. We had invited the congregation to church on Sabbath morning, our evangelistic audience, and these girls had turned in all of their books. They had said they never wanted to see us again. And on Sabbath morning, he was out in the steps greeting people. A car pulled up and those three young women got out. He said something he probably shouldn't have said, but he was so surprised, he said, girls, what are you doing here? I thought you told me that you we're never going to see you again. <laughs> I mean, I would have said, hey, welcome, welcome. And one of the young ladies said, let me tell you a story. Last Tuesday evening, the night that I brought the books back and told you I was never coming back, the, the girl that was kind of the head of these girls said, I couldn't sleep. And it was 12.30 at night, and all the sudden lights came on in his mind. And it was 12.30 at night, and I became so restless, I got up and I said, I have to study my Bible. I studied from Genesis to Revelation, all the texts that you had given me about the Sabbath. I became convinced. The next day, I called my girlfriends, and we've studied the last two days. There's no question in our mind, Saturday is the Sabbath, and we want to be baptized the Seventh-day Adventist. That young man, what happens? Ministering angels are waiting where? About the throne of God to instantly obey the mandate of Jesus Christ. What if every Seventh-day Adventist church had numerous prayer bands that were praying? What if members had prayer lists? What if groups of two and three were meeting to seek God? What if we were petitioning these good angels to come? Churches grow when they experience revival. And how do we experience revival? First, through intercessory prayer. Now, there are three aspects of revival, prayer, Bible study, meditation on God's word. Churches are revived when there's a renewed emphasis on Bible study. See, he, one of the reasons why there is such a lack of interest in witness is because the spiritual quality of many of our churches is so low. You can preach sermon after sermon after sermon on witness, but it's going to fall on dead ears. Because unless there is spiritual renewal, unless there is spiritual revival, unless there is prayer, and this is what was happening in the book of Acts, this is a universal principle. Churches grow when they're revived. And in the book of Acts, the disciples were praying. In the book of Acts, again and again and again, the Bible says they studied the word, they preached the word. So churches are renewed when there's a renewed emphasis on Bible study, when the word of God is life transforming. Through the word of God, the spirit searches our inmost souls and he penetrates our thoughts and he cleanses our hearts and he energizes our spiritual life. When we read the Bible, something miraculous happens. It is life transforming. I have committed my life that I will not go one day without saturating my mind in the word of God. My best prayer time and my best devotional time is in the Word. Often I'll take the book of Psalms and I open my Bible and I'll read Psalms as I pray. Read a Psalm and pray. Read a few verses in Psalms and pray. God speaks to us through 
his word. Prayer and praise in the Psalms. Now, the theme of the Psalms is the strength of the Lord. It's God as our protector, our redeemer, our intercessor, our judge, and our king. And let me just share with you how this goes. We combine and teach people to combine Bible study and prayer because when you combine those two, your devotional life becomes richer, it becomes much fuller. And so the theme of the Psalms is the strength of the Lord. So if you want the strength of the Lord, so let's suppose um, I'm praying. So in my prayer life, sometimes I'll sit and I'll write down uh, things that we want to praise God for, things that we thank him for. But very often, and most often recently, I've found the richest times of my devotional life as I pray through Psalms. So I'll open the Word of God and I begin to read. I'll give you an example. It's Psalm 40, and I read. So before I start to read, I may bow my head and say, Dear Lord, today I want to know you. Today I want to really experience your presence in my life. Today I want to sense that you're near by my side. And today I want to know your power in my life. And I'm going to read, Lord, the Psalms today, and as I read, I want to talk to you, and I want you to talk to me, and please speak to me through your book today. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Lord, you've, I'm waiting patiently for you. Recently, my heart's felt dry, and my spiritual life has felt dry, but I'm waiting patiently for you. I'm inclining my ear to you today, Lord. I'm hearing your cry. Lord, speak to me today. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. Lord, I've had some real challenges, real obstacles. It's been like a mountain, but out of miry clay and set me up my feet upon a rock. Lord, I'm claiming that by faith, that you're taking me out of that pit today, that, that pit of worry, that pit of anxiety, that pit of fear, that pit of darkness, that I'm not standing on the clay, that I'm standing on a solid rock. You're establishing my steps. You're putting a new song in my mouth today, Lord. I'm just thankful for that. Uh, verse 4, blessed is the man. I know, Lord, that the word blessed in Hebrew means asher, happy, peaceful, content. Lord, I want to be content today. I want to have the contentment that you're going to handle the issues that I have to face in my life, and I want to make you my trust. Many, O oh Lord, verse 5, uh, my God, are your wonderful works which you've done. Lord, I just want to pause now and think of all the things you've done for me this past week and the wonderful works. Do you see how you're praying through the Psalms? And it makes so much difference in your life because then you're not kneeling and praying for, for two minutes and saying, now what do I pray for next? Yeah, what do, what, what do I ask God for next? Okay, I ask God for the four things I want to ask him for. What am I going to ask him next? You know, it's a whole different relationship. Your, your Bible is open. You're praying through the Psalms. God's word becomes the subject matter for prayer, and God is speaking to you through prayer. As we teach our members to form little prayer groups, as we teach them intercessory prayer, revival breaks out in our churches. As we share with them, how to read psalms very practically and pray. So we teach prayer and praise through the psalms, and there have been times that I've started with Psalm 1 and prayed uh, going straight through the psalms. We also like to do, as we study the Bible, a thematic study of the epistles. My wife and I have done this for many, many months, and... Um, we will read Philippians straight through, or any book of the Bible. You can take Philippians, you can take... And we try to summarize that Bible book with one sentence. So like for us, Philippians, we read it through, and the key word in Philippians is joy. So we write down the joy of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, joy and trial. Philippians chapter 2, joy and humility. Philippians 3, joy and surrender. Philippians 4, joy and gratitude. So, for example, we look at... Philippians 1, joy and trial. Paul is thrown in prison, but yet he says, my heart is filled with joy. Philippians chapter 2, he says that Christ humbled himself. 
and Philippians chapter 3, the whole story is surrender. So we read those passages, then we pray them through. We say, Lord, in the trials of our life, teach us to be joyful. In the successes of our life, teach us to be humble. In the, ch in the challenges of our life, teach us to surrender. In every aspect of our life, teach us to be filled with gratitude. So we go through the Bible in our devotions. My wife and I often read the Bible out loud. Then we pray about the things that we have read. As you enter into Bible study and prayer together uh, with a close friend, with a spouse, it enriches your life. We have studied Ephesians together. We call that the symphony of salvation. And uh, chapter 1, Christ's riches are ours. Chapter 2, Christ's grace is ours. Chapter 3, Christ's power is ours. So we read chapter 1 and we read about all the riches of Christ that are ours. Chapter 2, about all the grace of Christ or the power of Christ that are ours. The last part, Christ's unity is ours. Christ's love is ours. So you get the idea. Studying the Bible and prayer. One of the most powerful aspects of studying God's Word is what I call a contemplative study on the death of Christ. And I probably should mention a little bit about the difference between contemplative prayer and contemplative study. Um, you hear some today about centering prayer or contemplative prayer. That basically comes from a group called the Desert Fathers. That they were monks that lived in the 7th and 8th century and on. And you will have the revival of that in some what is called emerging Christian churches today. The concept of contemplative or centering prayer is that you enter into a silence within you and a sense of stillness within in which you want every thought stilled. There's two problems with this. Problem number one, it's not biblical. There is no place in the Bible that leads us to have a stillness within where we try to quiet our thoughts because that which enables us to be created in the image of God is the ability to think. And anything that bypasses the conscious reasoning process and the ability to think is incredibly dangerous. So God is not leading us to a stillness within. Somebody says, what about the text that says, be still and know that I am God? Read Psalm, 40, read Psalm 46. It's totally different. The Bible says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So there's trouble in that chapter. David is in the midst of conflict, war, and strife. Chariots are, and remember it says he defeats the chariots, he breaks the bow in sunder, he cracks the spear in half. Then it says, be still and know that I am God. In the midst of conflict all around David, in the midst of war all around David, in the midst of destruction and strife, the Hebrew for be still is cease and desist. In other words, cease your labors. Trust in me, I'm God. It's not this stillness in our mind where you have no thoughts that the Bible is talking about. It's, being, it's resting from my own labors, believing that God is my defender. There are two problems with this idea of trying to empty your mind. The first is it's not biblical, and second is it comes from Eastern mysticism. In the Bible, 
when we talk about contemplative study, we are not talking about emptying our mind, but we're talking about filling our mind. And the two are opposite. We're not talking about emptying our mind in some silent stillness. We're talking about filling our mind with the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that's life transforming. It's the Word of God that's life changing. It's the Word of God that, that transforms your inner being. There are six chapters in the Bible on the death of Christ. And you remember Ellen White says it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour. Now, some people are confused about that passage. Um, they say, does that mean that she's encouraging us to spend an hour every day? As I read that whole passage, you know, there are times that we talk about the hour of prayer, the hour of our evening meal. Certainly, it would be good if one could spend an hour every day. That's fine. But I'm not so interested that you spend 60 minutes. I'm interested you spend some time. And so don't get caught up in the time. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour, a thoughtful period, a thoughtful period of time um, contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. There are six chapters on the death of Christ in the Bible. Here they are. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Matthew 27, Mark 13, Luke 23, and John 19. I was preaching on the deeper spiritual life at a little self-supporting institution not far from Southern Adventist University called Wildwood Medical Missionary Institute. And as I was there, there were a number of students from Southern that came. And one young woman was a, about a 19 or 20-year-old nursing student. And after the meeting, she came up to me and said, Pastor Mark, could we talk? And I said, sure. She said, let me tell you a story. She said, I really have been taking the heavy sciences. And it's really, really tough for me. Because I've been taking these heavy sciences. I have 18 semester hours. And I just have no time for devotions at all. When I came to college, I felt that I was a fairly committed Christian. But now my, my soul is dry and my heart is empty. I don't study the Bible. I don't pray very much at all anymore. And she said, can you help me? And I said, sure, let's sit down together. So I said, this is what I want you to do. And we went over these chapters. She actually wrote them down in the flyleaf of her Bible. And so she began to write Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And I said, look, these are the six chapters in the Bible on the death of Christ. And this is what I want you to do. I'm not telling you to take an hour, but I want you to take some time every day over the next month. And I just want you to read about the death of Christ. And you thank Jesus and you let Jesus' death mold your mind and mold your thinking. And you praise him for his great sacrifice and you'd be transformed by his grace, his love, his care for you. We had one contact, I think, after that, and she said, Pastor Mark, I'm doing it. About nine months later, this was in October, in June, June of that year, or July, I was preaching at the Southern New England Conference Camp Meeting, South Lancaster, Massachusetts, you know, a thousand miles from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And after I preached in the village church to a group of youth, a young woman came up to me, and she looked a lot like this girl, this nursing student at Southern, but it wasn't her, and I knew it wasn't her. It was a little older version. And I was saying, who is this? I think I know this person. And the girl said to me, I'm the sister of that girl. And she said, do you remember that experience? And I said, I sure do. We sat down after the meeting, and we talked about the death of Christ. And she said, I know you did. She said, let me tell you what happened. My sister wrote those passages down in the flyleaf of her Bible. It transformed her life. She had a vibrant experience with Jesus. This was in October that she came to your sermon. By November, she came home for Thanksgiving break at college, and she and my father were doing some Christmas shopping. Christmas music was playing. Christmas lights were twinkling. And when she was a little girl, she had this heart murmur, but she didn't have anything, any problems between then and college. She had a massive heart attack in the store 
fell over dead in my father's arms. When we went to recover her Bible, we opened the flyleaf of her Bible and it said, I once was a foolish virgin, but now I'm a wise virgin. And she had listed that, that the date of your sermon that night and the fact that she had renewed her commitment to Christ and the fact that she now was growing in Jesus, reading these chapters on the death of Christ. If you want your church revived, churches grow. What's that first principle? Churches grow when there is spiritual revival. Spiritual revival comes as we enter into a renewed experience in both prayer and Bible study. Here's the statement from Desire of Ages 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, as we dwell upon what Jesus did, as we dwell, about his dwell on his love and his grace, what happens? Our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened and we'll be more deeply imbued with his spirit. What, do you, what is this? This is revival, right? Our confidence in him is more constant, our love is more quickened, and we're more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. Now, there are some people that have a difficult time when they read the Bible, and I, they want new vitality. And I've developed a little acronym that I call VIM. V-I-M. VIM. Have you ever heard the expression vim and vigor? Vim and vigor, what does that mean? It means new life, it means vitality, okay? When I read the Gospels, let's suppose I'm reading a story about Jesus calming the storm. First visualization, I say to myself, what do I see in the Bible? I see a boat, I see disciples in the boat, I see Jesus in the boat, I see a storm, I see clouds, I see the disciples frustrated trying to save themselves, what do I see? That's the V. Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood for many years. What do I see? I see a woman bleeding. I see her dirty. I see her as the off-scarring of society. I see her rejected. What do I see? Second, how would I feel? How would I feel if I were one of those disciples? What fear would I have? How would I feel if I were that woman? How would I feel if I were the leper? How would I feel if I were the demoniac? I try to identify with the person. Then I meditate on it. What does it mean to me? What does it mean to me that Jesus delivered the demoniacs? If he could do that, he can deliver any me from any demon that tries to harass me. What does it mean that Jesus fed the 5,000? What do I see here? He's feeding the 5,000. How would I feel if I were hungry and Jesus gave me bread? What does it mean to me today? It, it means that Christ can meet every physical need that I have if he could meet, feed the 5,000. So as we go through Scripture, and it seems to me that's incredibly important as a pastor, as a lay leader, as you do prayer meetings, not simply to say to people, we need a revival. Well, amen. What else do you want to say? I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? The, how do you get there? How can you take a church that's a dead church and lead it to revival? you begin working with the one or two or three people, the five people, the ten people that have spiritually heart, spiritual hearts. Don't wait for the whole church to be revived. You start one prayer band over here and one prayer band over there and one prayer band over here. You get small Bible study groups going where you're studying the death of Christ, you're studying the Psalms, you're going through. Revival always begins with one man, one woman, one boy, one girl. 
That's where it begins. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus calming the storm. What do I see? What, how would I feel? What does it mean? As we study God's Word, our lives are transformed. What are the elements of revival? Prayer, Bible study, and the third is witness. The Bible says in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. If I really want revival, it's necessary to serve. So if you want a church to be revived, as you begin to help people pray and study the Bible, get them actively involved in doing something for Christ. You don't need to wait till your whole church is ready. Get a few people ready to go for Jesus. Because as those few are working for him, and as they have something active to do, their hearts and souls will be revived. Without outreach, there is an arthritis of the soul. There's the clogged arteries of the heart. There's the malignancy or cancer of the spirit. There's the retardation of real genuine spiritual growth. So without outreach, the church is crippled. The more, see, it's like you have two legs. This is the leg of prayer and Bible study. That will take me so far. This is the leg of witness. That takes me so far. This is the leg of prayer and Bible study. That takes me so far. This is the leg of witness. So without witness, the church is going to be spiritually anemic and spiritually dead. So it takes energy to lead the church to pray and Bible study, but then to get them actively involved in service projects. Some people, some people, it, it, the whole church is not going to happen. But as you do, more people become actively involved. When we come to Christ at the cross, we want to share his love with others. Acts 20, verse 35 says, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's more blessed to do what? Give, give than it is to receive. Who's more blessed, the one who gives the Bible study or the one who receives it? The one who gives it, sure. Have you ever felt that way yourself? You're tired. You don't feel like going out and giving a Bible study. And you go out and do it. And how do you feel? Incredibly blessed. Look, this is Acts of the Apostles, not 101. It's 105, actually. It's mistyped. The disciples forgot that strength to resist evil is best gained through aggressive service. I'm interested in that. Strength to resist evil is not best gained through prayer or Bible study. It's best gained through what? Aggressive service. Desire of Ages 142. In order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. So if... What are the elements of revival? Prayer, Bible study, and witness. Fundamentals to Christian Education, page 227. Those who are overcomers must be drawn out of themselves. And the only way, the only thing which will accomplish this great work is to become intensely interested in the salvation of what? Others. others. When we help people become interested in the salvation of others. I had a group of young people that I was teaching evangelism, and they were living in our home. So our home became the seminary building. For many years, my wife and I never lived by ourselves with our kids because we always had young people that were becoming young preachers living with us six months a year. Some lived for three, two, three years in our home. Brad Thorpe, who currently is the president of Hope Channel, lived in my home for three years when he was a young student. Tony Moore, who um, does the uh, Footsteps of Paul, lived in our home for two or three years. And uh, so many of these young people are all over America today with, as pastors, pastors' wives. And, we had, oh, 15, 20 of them that came through our home and lived in our home. Well, one of these young men 
was living in our home, and we would often give them one day a week off, and the rest of the time we would be out and uh, giving Bible studies and preaching and doing health evangelism. So we were in South Lancaster, Massachusetts, and it had snowed. So I said to them, look, let's go find a big hill, and there's a hill over there called Kilbourne Hill. And I said, let's go find this big, huge hill. We'll go sliding down it today. So we were sliding down it, and my little daughter at the time, Debbie, who's a physician today, was on one of these Bible workers back going down a hill with a sled. And they went over a big bump, and she went up and came down, hit him right on the back of the head, and he chipped his tooth. I mean, his mouth became all bloody, and so I said, oh, man, i got to get you to the dentist. So we brought him to the dentist, old Doc Johnson. And uh, Doc Johnson wasn't so old. He was probably in his 40s at the time. And so he's working on, on this young man's tooth, and this young man had never graduated from high school. He got his GED, hadn't gone to college. And so the dentist said to him, what do you do? And he said, I do the most wonderful work in the world. I go out and I work on Mark Finley's evangelistic team, and I give Bible studies, and there's nothing like it, Doc. And he went on and on and on and on. The doctor said, you know, i got to work on your mouth a little bit. you got to be quiet. The doctor then made a mistake. He said to him, boy, I've always wanted to give a Bible study, but I've never been able to do that. Young man looked at him. He said, Doc, did you go to Adventist Elementary School? Yeah, I went eight years. Did you go to Adventist High School? Yeah, I went four years. Did you go to Adventist uh, College? Yeah, I went four years. Doc, did you go to Adventist Medical School? Yeah, I went to Loma Linda. Doc, I don't understand it. I didn't go to any of those schools. I dropped out of high school, Doc. And you got 20 years of Adventist education and you don't know how to give a Bible study? Come with me, Doc, and I'll teach you. <laughs> the doctor was a godly, humble man. Then he said, I will come with you. The doctor happened to live in a, now not every physician does this, I know, but he lived in a part of town where the wealthy houses were. And my Bible worker had an old, broken down Volkswagen bug. So he drives up to the doctor's house, prum, 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 you know, with this old bug and, you know, all these boxes of Bible studies and literature in the back. Beautiful homes. And the doctor came out quite excited to go on the Bible study. And my friend said, I'll drive. And the doctor kind of looked at this old beat-up car. And he said, okay, get in. And so first Bible study, they drove away. And before they got out of the neighborhood, the car stalled and broke down. And it was on the top of a hill. And my friend said, okay, doc, if you push, I know we can get this thing started. <laughs> The doctor get out, is pushing the car. Can you just imagine this in this wealthy neighborhood? I mean, he's pushing the car down the street. They start it. The doctor runs around and gets in. They go down to Worcester, Massachusetts, and gave two Bible studies. It doesn't always happen this way, but God had an eye on that doctor. Both of those Bible studies were baptized, and the doctor's life was transformed. He had been going to his office week after week, day after day, pulling teeth, giving people anesthesia with no sense of mission, making money. But it transformed his life. He saw people in a new way. He was looking now for opportunities to share Christ in his office. General Conference needed a missionary for out in Bangladesh, and he was recommended. And he eventually left his lucrative medical practice and many years ago went to Bangladesh. Why? Because when you begin serving Christ and you begin working for Jesus, it transforms your life. Churches grow when they're revived. And how are churches revived? They're revived when we pray. They're revived when we study the Bible. They're revived when we get people actively involved in, in witness and service. So we ask some questions. And here are the questions we ask. 
what initiatives can leadership take on all levels of church life to foster and stimulate spiritual renewal? Shortly after Elder, Elder Ted Wilson was elected president of the General Conference, he met with me and he said, Mark, would you become associate and assistant to the president of the General Conference? And would you work with me especially on revival at the General Conference? I am not the only one that does that. A number of us do. One of the first things that I did is I said, if we are going to have spiritual revival, we need to set aside time to pray and study the Bible ourselves. So Elder Wilson asked if he could bring the president, the treasurer of the General Conference, Bob Lemon, and the uh, secretary, G.T. Ng, and that a few of us would gather in his office and that we would spend time studying the Bible and praying. We did. We then set aside time at all of our major committee meetings to, to pray and study God's word. We met with our vice presidents. We studied the Bible. Today, we meet on a regular basis. In fact, we have a committee called Revival and Reformation with top leaders in the church, and we will meet often for a whole day, study the Bible, we'll pray, we'll seek God together. Sometimes those Bible study sessions last a half hour. They have at times lasted an hour where the leadership of the church. So we ask the question, and I want to challenge you in your local church to ask this question, in your conference office to ask this question, in your union office ask this question. What initiatives can leadership take you're an elder of a church, you're a deacon of a church, you're a pastor of the church. You bring your elders and deacons. If you're a pastor, you bring your elders, your deacons, your deaconesses, your key leadership people to a leadership retreat. And you say to them in that leadership retreat, what initiatives can we take as church leaders to stimulate spiritual renewal? How can we launch an aggressive prayer ministry? What can we do to launch a Bible study ministry in our church? What can we do to launch more witnessing initiatives? Now, the second key, after a church is revived, the second key in the New Testament is equipping. We're going to take a little time for questions, and we're going to take a break. So we need some questions. Sure. Right there. Okay. We'll, take, we'll have some questions, and then we're going to take a break. What time is it right now? 10.26. Okay, we're doing fine. We're going to go to noon, but I'm going to give you like a 10-minute break to take a little walk. I believe in health evangelism. Get a drink of water because uh, let's say take 10, um, 10.26. We'll come back at quarter of 11. Take a few questions now. We'll quit about 10.30. We'll come back at quarter of 11, then we'll go to noon. Any questions on what we've gone over? We're looking at five principles. You know what I ought to do? I should just give you the five principles to write down. Then you'll know where we're going, okay? And I phrase them in five statements. The first statement is this. Churches grow when there's spiritual revival. That is a universal principle. If there is no revival, there is no growth. Churches grow when there's spiritual revival, when members are renewed. Secondly, churches grow when their members discover their spiritual gifts and are equipped and trained to serve. So churches grow when there's spiritual renewal. Secondly, churches grow when their members discover their gifts and they're equipped and trained to serve. Not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Service is the essence of the Christian life. So churches grow, and I'm going to talk about broad-based ministries in churches and equipping members. Thirdly, churches grow when there's multifaceted community outreach. That's thirdly. Churches grow when there's multifaceted community outreach. In other words, we call it the narrow few principle. The narrow few principle. 
The narrower your base in reaching out to the community, the fewer people you're going to win. I have church pastors say to me a lot, well, our church hasn't grown for years. My question is, what are you doing to reach the community? What kind of programs do you have in the community? What kind of ministries do you have in the community? What kind of activity do your members have in the community? So churches grow and they're a multifaceted uh, uh, community outreach. And I'm going to go over each one of these with you. Fourth, so one, churches grow in their spiritual revival. Two, churches grow when, they're when members are equipped and trained to serve. Three, churches grow when there's multifaceted community outreach. Four, churches grow when there's intentional evangelistic activity. Now that's one that we see. If you look at the book of Acts, it's not enough to contact people. It's not enough to hope that some kind of friendship is going to bring them into the church. I will surprise you when I say friendship does not bring people into the Adventist church. Friendship does not bring people into the Adventist church. Friendship prepares them. You can be friend with a person at a golf course, friend with a person at a bowling alley. You can be friend with a person in your bike club and never talk to them about Jesus. And you may have a friend, but you make a, Christian, you make a friend, then you make a Christian friend, then you make an Adventist Christian friend. So friendship simply creates a climate where you can share Jesus with them. You don't win people without friendship, but friendship alone is not going to win them. This whole idea that I just have to go be friends with people and they're going to just kind of fall into the baptismal tank. There has to come some point where you're sharing God's word with them. Some point. So churches grow when there's some intentional evangelistic proclamation where you're sharing God's word, where they're involved in some seminar, where they're growing. And, yeah. and fifthly, Churches grow when those who come into the fellowship of the church are nurtured. We don't dip them and drop them. We immerse them and instruct them. And so when you look at the true cycle of evangelism in the book of Acts, you have spiritual renewal. You have active membership involvement. They're being equipped and trained. You have active community impact where they're reaching out. They're outward focused, not inward focused. You have intentional evangelism in the book of Acts where you have the proclamation of God's word and you have nurture. Those are the real elements. And we're going to look at those later. Any quick questions that anybody has? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Churches grow when, when there is nurture. When, the, when those new converts are nurtured. When they are further instructed. And I think I had a sister here in the back. Was it the same question? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. In the, new, in the New Testament, you mean? Right. So mm. do we have to have, because some, some, some churches now saying, well, before you, you do anything with these individuals, you have to study with them. Okay. I've looked at every rapid baptism in the New Testament. If you look at the rapid, uh, every apparent rapid baptism in the New Testament, mm -hmm. here's the stories for rapid baptisms you have in the New Testament. You have Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 are baptized in a day. You have the story of the Philippian jailer who is baptized. You have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized that Philip meets and baptizes him that day. And you also have the story of Peter and Cornelius. Now, if you look at the rapid baptisms in the New Testament, there are five characteristics of every rapid baptism. 
And I'll look at those five characteristics, and this will help you to understand the answer to that question. With the exception of one where we don't have adequate information, and that's the Philippian jailer. We don't have a lot there, but so one of the five characteristics is missing in the Philippian jailer. But every rapid baptism in the New Testament, you have five characteristics. Characteristic number one, there is evidence of previous instruction. When you look at Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 are baptized, these folk are Jews who are in Jerusalem, who have, came, who have come to Jerusalem to worship, and there's clear evidence that they had listened to the preaching of Christ before. So they had been coming to feasts at Jerusalem. They knew about the Messiah. Many of them were in the crowds that Christ had preached. So there was previous instruction in Acts 2. In the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian was studying the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. He had been up to Jerusalem to worship. So he was evidently a Jew who was an Ethiopian Jew that was going back to Africa. So there is indication that he had previous instruction. Cornelius, the Bible says, was a God-fearing man. So you do have evidence of previous instruction, number one. Secondly, you have evidence of the supernatural. In every instance, there's evidence of the supernatural. In Acts chapter 2, the gift, of the, the, the gift of tongues comes upon the disciples. There's evidence of the supernatural that confirms to the evangelist the readiness of the candidate to be baptized because God moves in such a powerful way that it becomes obvious that God is led in this life. In, Cornel in Cornelius's sake, Cornelius has a dream and Peter has a dream. So that evidence of the supernatural in the life of both the evangelist and in the life of the believer indicates, and I'm coming to a certain point, and you'll see my point shortly. Um, if you look, for example, at Cornelius, at, at Ethiopian, Philip is taken from where he's preaching down to where the man is. That's pretty supernatural. If you look at um, Paul and Silas in the prison, the prison falls down. So in every apparent rapid baptism, there's evidence of previous instruction, there's evidence of supernatural. Thirdly, in every rapid baptism, there is the acceptance of a present truth message that causes the one being baptized to be willing to step out from society and be persecuted if necessary. Uh, so, for example, when you become a Christian in Roman society, you become part of the minority. So there is a present truth message that becomes the testing truth message. In fact, that's what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he talks about the acceptance. So these people accepted a present truth message. Um, when you look at 1 Peter 1, uh, he talks there in the first chapter. Um, let's see if I can pick it up. Verse 12, he says, um, To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look at. I think I'm second. It's second Peter. It's not first Peter. It's second Peter. Yeah, it's second Peter 1.12. Here we go. I knew I was in the right book, but the wrong, right church, wrong pew. Second um, Peter 1.12, Therefore I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Then he says, what, what, what things was he talking about? The things of Jesus. So they accepted a present truth message. Three points so far. Number one is they 
evidence of previous instruction. Number two, the supernatural. Number three, present truth message. Number four, in every instance they accepted a prophetic message. What do I mean by that? You look at Acts chapter 2. Peter unfolded the prophecies of the Old Testament, a prophetic message. What was the Ethiopian eunuch reading? Isaiah, Isaiah what? 53. What is Isaiah 53? Prophecy. Prophecy. Is your mind beginning to go where I'm going now? Yeah. When a person has previous instruction, when their supernatural manifestation of the power of God in their life is transformed, when they're willing to step out for a present truth message that's a prophetic message today, and the fifth thing is each one of those people understood clearly that they were becoming part of the Christian church. They were not baptized into nothing. When you look clearly at the New Testament, you have body theology, they were baptized into the body of Christ. What does that then mean? When do we baptize people today? When they know Jesus Christ, their lives have been transformed by him, they have some previous instruction, they understand a prophetic present truth message for this hour in its general essentials, and they're prepared to become part of the body of Christ, his last day remnant. That's New Testament theology. Okay, any other questions? Yes? Any other form? If I could photocopy what's in my head, it would be. Um, there, is a, there is a church growth seminar that I taught many years ago that we still have available uh, from Heart Research, and it's called Fulfilling the Gospel Commission. Much of this material is there. Okay, let's take a break. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.